You're listening to Hallway Talks with Louisa and Ria. This week, our guest is both a professor and an alum of NYU Wagner. Welcoming Cyril Ghosh, author of Demoralizing Gay Rights, a book where he critically interrogates the 21st century discourse on LGBTQ plus rights in the U.S. Professor Ghosh is an adjunct associate professor at NYU Wagner and the chair of the Government and Politics Department at Wagner College, Staten Island. He is also the division chair this academic year for the Sexuality and Politics Division at the American Political Science Association. He talked to us about the Supreme Court and the impact of its decisions on LGBTQ plus rights in the U.S., what rights he thinks that have most chance of being upheld, and what issues we should be really concerned about. So sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy the episode. Recorded November 23rd, 2020. Professor Ghosh, it's such a pleasure to have you here. We really want to talk to you about what's going on in the Supreme Court right now in the United States, especially when it comes to LGBTQ plus right issues. It's been a highly debated topic. It's something that's gained a whole new dimension under Trump's administration. And we know that you have written a lot about it. And I think we can just start with like the big one, right? Obergefell versus Hodges. This was the Supreme Court landmark case when the Supreme Court guarantees same-sex couples the right to marriage. Um, however, in your book, Demoralizing Gay Rights, you criticize a little the approach that the Supreme Court took there, especially in the way that they endorsed only one conception of what a good family or a good intimate life means. Can you expand a little more on that and tell us what you mean by that and what do you think would be a better approach for this landmark case? Um, yeah, I can. Uh, but before I do that, I want to say thank you to Louisa Yu and to Ria for inviting me and also to Tiffany for inviting me for to do this. And I'm just only too happy to do it because, you know, it, if I can make the time, I want to be helpful. Thank you so much. So yeah, also big shout out to Tiffany, our editor in chief here at the Wagner Review. Okay, so you asked me about Obergefell versus Hodges. Uh, I can, I should probably ask you. Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I can go on about this. Um, so we can always add it down. So you know, <laughs> okay. So Obergefell versus Hodges gets decided by the Supreme Court in 2015. And it is the first time the court says that state bans on, on same-sex marriage uh, are unconstitutional. So in earlier, two years prior to that, in 2013, the court had held that um, in a case called United States versus Windsor, the court had held that as far as the federal government was concerned, federal government needed to recognize same-sex marriages and that and in so saying it said that one particular section of a congressional statute called the defense of marriage act was actually unconstitutional now that specific section defined marriage as a union between a man and a woman so because this was a congressional statute this was a federal law and this was struck down as a result it basically said that for the federal government 
um, it, it is, they need to recognize a union between a man and a man and a man and a woman if they, the two individuals are engaged in a validly concluded marriage contract, right? So that is the opinion. Now, right. when this happened, um, there was some talk that, okay, well, now the federal government recognizes it. What about the states? Because some states do recognize it or um, either allow marriage within their own states or recognize mm -hmm. marriages uh, contracted into in other states. So um, a series of lawsuits happened right after the Windsor decision. And it turned out that some... Um, Circuit Courts of Appeal actually said that, yeah, no, we have to fall in line with Windsor and therefore any constitution. On the other hand, there was one Circuit Court of Appeals, the Sixth Circuit, which decided in the other direction, which basically said that if you have a state marriage ban in a state like Ohio or Kentucky, um, that was permissible under the law. Now, this creates what is called a circuit split. So some circuit courts of appeal are saying that actually all the states need to fall in line with Windsor, but the one circuit court of appeals is saying no state bans are perfectly valid and constitutional. Now this presents a problem, and when there is a circuit split, the Supreme Court usually what's called grants cert or agrees to hear oral arguments and 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 it takes up the case. So and it did, and this case is Obergefell versus Hodges. And in that majority opinion, the court held that um, statements were unconstitutional. But in so saying, Justice Kennedy, who writes the majority opinion, um, offers a form of legal reasoning that is, um, uh, first of all, the prose is extremely, like he writes with a certain kind of what, what I should call, some people have already called rhetorical flourish. Like, you know, he's, he's <laughs> engaging in- flourish. Yeah, and 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 he does another very strange thing, which is that he finds um, what several constitutional law scholars have uh, called a nexus between the equal protection and the due process clauses of the Fifteenth Amendment. Now, this um, and in so finding, he says, "Well, there is a right to equal dignity." Now, this has been a matter of some controversy. So that do we want to discover um, a right that is not explicitly stated in the Constitution? And this is a long-running debate uh, on constitutional law about whether there exists, and you all know this, whether there exists a right to privacy, which justifies mm -hmm. all sorts of things in, like the right to use contraception within a marital household or for single people, and then a series of cases on abortion, obviously, like, you know, Roe Ro versus Wade and... Planned Parenthood versus Casey and all the rest of it. So now the question is, well, is it an egregious blunder for the court to find or discover uh, a new kind of right, a right to equal dignity? And is this nexus something that we want to uh, like um, persist with? But in, in addition to all this, he also writes an opinion that is extremely uh, invested in what I call one particular conception of the good life, a good life invested in the proper family values, right? Like mm. lots of discussion in Obergefell about parenting, about romantic love and all the rest of it. And so the thing you're referring to in demoralizing gay rights, um, yeah. 
also written other stuff um, that has some overlap with this. I, I basically critique this. I say, look, this family values kind of rhetoric is not very helpful because it is one thing to say that there is a, um, you know, that individuals have a right to marry a person who is another consenting adult. Quite another to say that these two people must be involved in some kind of romantic love that is canonized in like Hollywood movies and and all this kind of thing. And 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 the thing with parenting, even though it's not compulsorily biological in Kennedy's rendering, it still makes it so that the good life is only lived in a, a traditional household with two parents and children, right? And this is, for me, a little bit obnoxious because lord knows uh, many of us grew up with single parents uh, people are looking for love and they can't find it people get abandoned by their uh, intimate partners i mean the norm is to grow up in a non-traditional household you know i mean no matter how we, <laughs> yeah so for me just for the court to say that this is the ideal life or this is the good way to live a life sounds a little bit too sanctimonious and oppressive, actually, for people who can't conform or assimilate into what Justice Kennedy thinks is the right way to live. J just to be perfectly clear, I am not opposed to the judgment in a process, right? I mean, I, I may be critical of marriage as an institution, but as long as there is marriage, I want marriage to be equal. There should be equal, equal marriage, right? But I do have serious objections to the legal reasoning that, that is offered to uh, scaffold the judgment. The traditional rhetoric around it. Mm -hmm. That's right. And it's just, to me, it's unacceptable. So since you talk about rhetorics, uh, we, Louisa and I are both international students. You yourself um, have migrated into the U.S. And I think that these Western democracies, Western countries that we see with judgments of this kind seem to project themselves as a sort of gold standard of LGBTQ rights. Um, and you refer to this in your book when you talk about pinkwashing. Could you tell us a little bit about that rhetoric, that concept? Um, again, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, pinkwashing is in, um, you know, it starts um, as a, a critique of um, companies that commodified and started selling their products and saying that, you know, you buy this product, you get a part of the proceedings will go to breast cancer awareness or breast cancer research. That's how this starts. And so some people wrote critiques of this. And then subsequently, the word has been adopted and adapted to uh, offer a specific form of critique of international politics and mm. various people have written on this, but most famously um, it is Catherine Franca's work. She says, well, you know, you take a look at a country like Israel and you see what they do. What they do is they take their, um, their pro-pinkness as in their pro-LGBT plusness or their gay rights um, record. And mm -hmm. they try to demonstrate to the rest of the world that they are um, that this is an indication of how liberal we are and how democratic we are. So it, it's the credentialization of Israel as a liberal democracy, which is then used by the state as a part of its propaganda to explain to the rest of the world that anyone else in the West Asian region around them or the Middle East and North Africa region, if you will, 
that area, they are all anti-democratic, illiberal, right? Because they don't have gay rights. These are mostly Muslim majority countries and all the rest of it, right? But I want to be clear, Franke is saying that Israel is not the only state that does it. And nor is it the case that a state sometimes voluntarily does it. It's also the case that other states sometimes impose this kind of stuff onto other states. And he has all kinds of discussions of Romania and Romania's access to the European Union and, and things like that. Um, United States, uh, we are complicit in this too. Various people have written on this, um, how, how we brandish our own gay rights record uh, while you know sweeping under the rug all sorts of horrible things that go on against LGBT plus people in this country yeah. to demonstrate that we are on the, as Hillary Clinton famously said, on the right side of history, right? Yeah. But people who've written in the tradition, um, people other than Franco, so I'm thinking here of uh, Jasbir Puar and some other people, the people who are writing in this vein, people whom, whom I'm critical of, will say Israel and the US do, do it. Yeah. Yeah. And they forget to mention other countries. And and the famous example is that um, as Secretary of State Hillary Clinton goes to the United Nations in 2011 and she delivers the speech where she says gay rights and human rights, right? This is a famous yeah. speech and the whole world is listening to it. And my own view is that um, the, that the speech itself is a double-edged sword. And I take very seriously, Cynthia Weber's argument that says that it is. Mm -hmm. And while it is an example of pinkwashing, Weber says, you want to ask yourself at the same time, well, what does this speech do in the world? Yeah. yeah. Does it mean for the Secretary of State of the United States to go to the United Nations and say that gay rights are human rights? What does it do in the world? Do you want to live in a world where this hadn't happened? Right? Yeah. So yeah. there is also that's what's tricky, right? And I think that this is one of those examples where it's really difficult to say, we were pinkwashing, yes, but was it a horrible thing in the world? Maybe not. So Maybe not. True. Yeah. We have to address what's happening on the Supreme Court right now, because the makeup of the Supreme Court has drastically changed since 2015, when it had Obergefell versus Hodges. Trump has nominated three new justices. The most recent one, quite controversial, quite all of them controversial, but the most recent ones really on all of our minds. And I would love to hear what's your take on how this is going to impact future rulings on LGBTQ plus rights. You know, um, part of your question is asking me to prognosticate about what's going to happen. And, you know, and, and me being a political scientist, yeah. <laughs> I tell my students, I tell everyone, anyone who will, who's, who's willing to listen to me that I am not in the business of prognosticating after 2016. Like what, you know, we said in 2016. That's extremely but, wise of you. <laughs> but, but I do understand the question and I am, yeah. uh, I'm going to offer some, what I hope are educated guesses. Yes, please. Okay, so the first thing is that the... LGBT plus rights advances that we've had so far are um, especially that came to us from the U.S. Supreme Court have been quite narrow margins, typically, right? Been yeah. uh, five, four decisions. And I'm thinking here of three main cases in the 21st century. And the first one is Lawrence versus Texas in 2003. It's the first time the court says that if you have a 
state statute that criminalizes um, the sodomy or homosexual mm -hmm. sodomy that is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And this overturns a 1986 ruling by the court in Bowers versus Hardwick. And for the first time, we have a situation where the country is saying that um, you can't proscribe homosexual conduct. You, so in the beginning, it used to be that you could say that you were gay. There was no prescription on identity, but there was a prescription on conduct. You couldn't engage in homosexual activity, depending on which state you were in. Now, that gets invalidated by the 2003, but we still have, at least in one domain, in the military, the um, idea that you can't say that you're gay because we have the don't ask, don't tell. Don't right? ask, don't tell. Right. I think in the books till 2010 or something. So Lawrence was actually not a 5-4 decision. It was a 5-4 decision, but Sandra Day O'Connor joined the decision on a very, very precise and narrow legal principle. But then Windsor and Obergefell were both 5-4 decisions. They were narrow decisions with Justice Kennedy siding with the majority of the court. Now, mm -hmm. um, so it was precarious to begin with, the marriage right? And then what we have is now a conservative 6-3 majority and the worry among liberals, at least, or uh, and or the pro-LGBT plus rights people, is that because we have Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Barrett on the court now, it is uh, tricky because they will start to issue opinions um, that will be, I don't know, retrogressive, will erode the rights advances that we've made. Now, is this entirely true? I don't know. I, I want to say to you that you want to look at some of the recent court say in the case Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, we, the court holds that this particular baker has the right to deny services to a same-sex couple, right? If you want to a customized wedding cake. Okay. But the thing with that case, though, is that whether or not the baker has the right to do this was not precisely the issue at hand. The court was asked to adjudicate a slightly different matter. It was actually asked to adjudicate if the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was within its rights to do what it did and or to say what it did say in compelling the baker to actually sell the cake, right? Now, there was a slight problem with in the textual material, we find evidence that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had said some things about this baker's religious beliefs that would be quite an affront to somebody who believe, subscribes to those beliefs, right? So it became a situation where the court said, well, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had not been neutral in its application of the law, and it had actually targeted or uh, singled out a specific religious persuasion to say that, you know, you guys are wrong to do this because your faith is some. So one of the charges was, is it a, is it viewpoint discrimination? Are they actually saying, taking a, one specific viewpoint and saying that is not valid? Okay. Now there is a precedent to this. Um, in the early 90s, the court actually invalidates a city ordinance in Florida that banned animal sacrifice for a, a very small religion called the Santeria Church. And in that, the court actually looks at the town hall meeting notes and it says, okay, these people are saying horrible things about this one specific religious group. And as a result, we 
we say that the specific ordinance was biased. It wasn't neutral in its application, right? So drawing upon, partly upon that, it discovered, it finds that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was out of its, um, uh, was acted in an unconstitutional manner. And so the court said in masterpiece that the specific baker should not have been treated in the way in which he was. But this is very narrow and very specific to that baker in Colorado. It never said that this kind of religious exemption is okay for the rest of the country. And this yeah. matters a great deal because right now, as we speak, the court is deciding on a case that has something to do with religious exemptions. And I'll say more on this in one second. <laughs> so, so we have the masterpiece decision. And then this year, and Justice Barrett was not yet on the court, um, this year in a six to three opinion, not five, four, in a 6-3 opinion, the court held that employment discrimination against on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity was actually unconstitutional. And it read the provisions of, of Title VII in that way. And the person writing that majority opinion is Justice Neil Gorsuch, okay, who is widely known to be a textualist and an originalist, right? And he reads the text of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act in a way in which he finds that this kind of dis discrimination, employment discrimination, is impermissible under the law. Now, because it's a 6-3 opinion, um, it, even if that swings one more vote to the right, um, I don't see Bostock as being overturned. That Bostock versus Clayton County is the name of the case. Yeah. I don't see that being overturned anytime soon. So those employment discrimination things, that, that is here to stay, I think, at least for a while, right? And various students ask me if, if this is, signals the end of marriage equality, and I don't know about that. Okay. I don't know about that for the following reason. Um, so Windsor was decided in 2013. That was seven years ago. And Obergefell was decided in 2015, five years ago. So countless families have, have come together over this period on the assumption that their marriages are actually valid. It is getting into the terrain, I think, of a matter of settled law at this point. And it is very infrequently the case that when something is considered widely to be settled law, that it is overturned. And the other thing is that, um, you know, just the simple cost of overturning this, the ripple effects it's going to have throughout the economy. Yeah. I don't know if the court is interested in, in causing that kind of a seismic shock to the system. Like, I don't think it wants to do yeah. it. Like, yeah. so it is, I, I think my guess is that it's highly unlikely that marriage equality is going to be overturned, even though the, the balance on the court has shifted. But there are problems. And there, there are problems. Okay. So as we speak, the court is actually, Justice Barrett was on the bench when they had oral arguments on this case. It's a case coming out of Philadelphia. And it's called, um, I think it's called Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. In that specific case, Philadelphia actually subcontracts out to private agencies uh, to put kids in foster homes, like adoption. It's Catholic Charities, I think is the name of the organization, um, that is one of the subcontractors. And because of their religious uh, persuasion, they have decided that they're not going to put kids in households headed 
by same-sex parents. Mm -hmm. And as a result, Philadelphia enjoined them. They said, you're not on the list of people doing this. And, and so they sued and they said, well, this is not neutral the way you're handling this and that we need to have a, a religious exemption. So this becomes very, very tricky because now we have a case before the court that talks about LGBT rights, LGBT plus rights on the one hand, and on the other, it's also about the free exercise clause, the free exercise of religion, right? Yeah. We don't know how it's going to end because um, the justices, particularly Justice Barrett, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, these new, newer justices, there is not enough info we have on all three of them on cases discussing things like religious exemptions in these particular types of situations and how they're going to read the law and how they're going to treat precedent. It's tricky. And we, we, with religious exemptions, it becomes a, a murky area. We don't actually know. Absolutely. You've talked about so many tensions, but I, it's funny how the narrative of LGBTQ rights is usually stays around marriage equality. But there's so much more to it. There's so much more to it when we talk about employment, the right to adopt, um, housing, so many different avenues for those rights to be suppressed. Um, and I think you've talked a lot about the tensions of those suppression tactics that could come up in the court, something we should be maybe looking out for. But you've also given us reason to be a little hopeful. Um, it's not all <laughs> terrible. Maybe the overall um, marriage equality judgment might not be overturned. We don't know, but it's little re reason to be hopeful. I want to ask you as students that are looking to get involved with LGBTQ rights, the movement in the US, uh, the Supreme Court, of course, might not be the best avenue for us to engage with. So what is the best avenue? What are the resources or the spaces where we as students that are interested can engage? Generally speaking, getting involved in politics, I think there's many different avenues, like you can do political participation in so many ways, like voting, obviously, uh, writing letters to the editor is another, uh, contacting members of Congress is another way to do it, activism, going to protests, getting involved, get, getting internships with um, LGBT plus, plus rights advocacy groups or legal defense funds, mm -hmm. or um, getting involved with um, um, doing inter internships with um, U.S. senators who might actually sponsor bills that will help the cause. That would be another way to do this. Um, um, above all, connecting, forming a network and connecting. We already, you, you all already do lots, actually, for this cause. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not like I'm saying anything new. Uh, sooner or later, we are going to have to deal with the uh, transgender rights, the bathroom bill issue. And yeah. we've known a couple of years ago, the court had a case from Virginia and it remanded it uh, back to the lower courts. And um, the Justice Barrett actually gave a lecture in 2016. It's a very famous one. It's on YouTube. Lots of people are talking about it. And as far as I can remember, she phrases it this way. Uh, she says that, it appears to be straining the text of the law yeah. to say that this uh, uh, that Title IX requires that a person who uh, 
uh, uh, does not, who identifies as transgender is um, allowed to use a bathroom that aligns with their gender identity, right? And that case was uh, went through rehearing, and right now the Circuit Court of Appeals has, has sided with the plaintiff. And I don't know if it's going to be sent up all the way back up to the Supreme Court. I don't know what's going to happen, but if it's not that case, it's going to be another one, right? Yeah. And you certainly have a set of people, justices on the court, who are going to say that, oh, this is a matter that needs to go not to the court, but to Congress, right? So it, it is far more secure if we actually have a congressional statute or uh, statutes at the state level or even at the federal level that rewrites the law in a way that actually makes it clear as a, as a textual matter. Yeah. That somebody should be that a person should be allowed to use the bathroom that aligns with their current gender identity, right? Yeah. So, um, getting involved in advocacy around um, getting members of Congress to write a law that makes this clear might be the thing to do, okay? Yeah. As opposed to assuming that these are kinds of disputes that should be adjudicated or resolved in the courts. This is a whole different discussion, but you bring up an important point about how much does the LGBTQ plus movement in the courts as well as in legislature, how much does it serve trans rights? And are trans rights being served in the same way through laws like marriage equality, uh, the employment discrimination that you were talking about? Because things like using a toilet will not come up in the same way when we're talking about LGBTQ plus rights and trans rights in a separate way. Do you think trans rights are being served by the same movement? No, absolutely not. I don't. I think that I think that um, there are many, many, many things involved in um, uh, the uh, uh, questions that relate to questions of justice for transgender individuals. But only the trendiest things become hashtags and get circulated on social media, like you know maybe the bathroom or something. But um, violence is the biggest and there's all sorts of other kinds of discrimination and 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 in Bostock they did say that uh, this is uh, gender identity was a thing in the Bostock case there were three cases that got consolidated into um, Bostock but I do think that there's a, a long tradition of critiquing this that says yeah. that you know it's a not only is the LGBT plus rights canon or movement or group dominated by gays and lesbians. Yeah. It's really dominated by gays, the gay men. And even among the gay men, it's white gay men, right? So it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, so you may say that, you know, that we need to be more inclusive than that. Now, I think some of that critique is a little bit unfair. I do. But I do think that on the issue of trans rights, we are pretty we behave very very selfishly as a as a group i think and mm-hmm. and of course and in india where i come from the the courts have decided that sexuality is one thing gender identity is quite another yeah. and that give third gender rights to one group of people but then we refused to give we had sodomy laws on the books and then it was a legal maze and we didn't know what to do and it was just a complete mess and Absolutely. so that is the other extreme where you disaggregate to the point where you say it's completely separate and then the but you also don't want to be in a place where you conflate it all so that you know everything that is a t related matter gets obfuscated by the dominant ones right so 
it's always tricky and it's just like <laughs> yeah but yeah but for sure i do think that we focus too much on issues that are palatable acceptable to the dominant mainstream and the everything else becomes like a fringe phenomenon thank you so much for this interview professor gosh i'm so happy that you're ending with this very needed call out mm -hmm. this was really great all right very welcome and i hope to see you on campus Professor Gosh. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Professor Gosh is an adjunct associate professor at NYU Wagner and the chair of the Government and Politics Department at Wagner College, Staten Island. He is also the division chair that. Professor Gosh is. Professor Josh.